morning. I don't know what it is, but I'm feeling really good today. Not really the case yesterday. My eye was just like, ah, my Terminator eye, I mean, is getting better. It's less red, so there's like, what's that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely getting better for sure, so um, just a slower process than I would like for sure, so but we'll get there. Um, let's Let's pray. Creator of the universe, you made the world in beauty, and you restore all things in glory through the victory of Jesus Christ. We pray that wherever your image is still disfigured by poverty, by sickness, by selfishness, by war, by greed, the new creation in Jesus Christ may appear in justice, in love, and in peace. For the glory of your name. All right, so as I said, during the prayer time, we're going through the Acts of the Apostles. This is Easter week five, and we are journeying with the early church and figuring out our story, how we fit in in God's grand scheme. So last week, we were with Dorcas and Joppa. The week before that, we were uh, on the road to Damascus in Saul's major conversion moment. And what I loved about last week is that we went from this major conversion moment with Saul and Luke reminds us that it's the ordinary, it's the mundane life of the disciples in Joppa. That is what really matters. That's what characterizes the early Christian life and hence that that's what our lives should be characterized by. You know, it's the, it's the homeless bags, the giving bags, as they will now be referred to as. Um, it's those ministries that... Uh, are really the core of the gospel. And this morning, we continue with our story. We continue with Peter, and Peter is is going to face some opposition today. And our story involves the what I what I'm calling I'm stealing this phrase from um, from Daniel Berigen, uh the groaning napkin of all creation descending. All right. Now that is a title I can get on board with. But before we really understand what the groaning napkin of all creation descending really means, we need to know a little bit about the Levitical law. And I know most of you are thinking, on your way to church today, I really hope that he talks about Leviticus, because that's where the excitement is. But nevertheless, that's what we're going to do to start off with. So Leviticus 11, we're going through the Levitical law because uh, we'll find out more in Peter's story why the stories of any consequences because of Leviticus. So Leviticus 11, I'm going to cut and paste some of this because Leviticus 11 is just like long and lots of laws. So God spoke to Moses and Aaron, speak to the people of Israel, tell them that all the animals of the earth, these are the animals that they may eat. They may eat any animal that has a split hoof, divided in two, that the chew, that chews the cud, but not an animal that only chews the cud or only has a split hoof. Right. Write that down. For instance, the camel chews the cud but doesn't have a split hoof. Didn't know that. So it is unclean. Creatures that crawl on the ground are detestable and not to be eaten. Don't eat creatures that crawl on the ground, whether they're on their belly or on all fours or on many feet. They are detestable. Okay, fair enough. Don't make yourselves uh, unclean or be defiled by them. 
because I am your God. Make yourselves holy, for I am holy. Do not make yourselves ritually unclean by any creature that crawls on the ground. I am God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Be holy, because I am holy. These are the instructions on animals, birds, fish, and creatures that crawl on the ground. You have to distinguish between the ritually unclean and the clean, between living creatures that can be eaten and those that cannot be eaten. All right, so there's a lot of rules. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you will feel like it's all rules, right? Just about. It's just rule after rule after rule. But these are vitally important. I mean, they were important within the life of the disciples, within the life of Jesus. Uh, from all that we can really tell it is that this, these were the laws that Jesus and his disciples followed to the T. And so whenever we pick up the story in the Acts of the Apostles, it's really consequential to uh, figure out how these laws apply to them, all right? And you'll see how uh, this unclean versus clean, it gets tossed around all throughout the New Testament. Peter is dealing with it because he has opposition. Paul deals with it later in the early churches that are trying to figure out who's in and who's out because that's the distinction. The Gentile people historically have been out. I mean, God has separated Israel to be the descendants of Abraham to be the tribe that is the sacred people of God. And this was defined by uh, circumcision for males. So males would be circumcised on the eighth day, and that set you apart from everyone else as God's people. So we pick up the story in Acts of the Apostles, and now everyone can be followers. Well, you know, what about Sal? I mean, he's just come along now. He's you know, not from a Jewish family. How does he fit into this in or out, clean or unclean? So let's, let's, dive, into, let's dive into Acts. To help me uh, demonstrate, I'm going to have some volunteers act out our, our scene. They look awkward, you know. It only helps me. All right, news traveled fast, and in no time, the leaders and friends back in Jerusalem. This is Acts 11. So what's interesting about this passage here is that Luke is going to tell this same story that we read in Acts 11 three times. He does it in Acts 10. He does it in Acts 11 today from mostly the perspective of Peter. And then he does it again in Acts 15. And so whenever an author tells the same story three times, you have to think, okay, he's, he's making the, a point here. He, this is really important for him. So just keep that in the back of your mind as, as we go through this passage because this is something he really wants, uh, Luke really wants the early church to process. News traveled fast, and in no time, the leaders and friends back in Jerusalem heard about it, heard about the non-Jewish outsiders were now in. Peter got back to Jerusalem. Some of his old associates, concerned about circumcision, called him onto the carpet. Okay, so I'm not sure if we have our, our map somewhere, but we've had a really historical map that we've been going through. Peter went from Jerusalem to Lydda to Joppa. In Acts 10, uh, the story is a little bit more detailed. It talks about how Peter then hung out in Joppa for a little while. And then now uh, he's gone back to Jerusalem and his old friends are just like, they're just kind of giving him crap about this, you know, about his trip. So 
We have Bermuda Triangle up here, Waco, Dodger Stadium, traffic on the 405, all that good stuff. Um, that's very historical. So what do you think uh, you're going, uh, what do you think you're uh, doing rubbing shoulders with that crowd? Eating what is prohibited and ruining our good name. So this goes back to what we were saying earlier. Uh, you know, he is apparently, as he's come back to Jerusalem, he's been eating what is prohibited. What's prohibited? All the, you know, beasts that crawl on the ground, everything basically, right? Everything that's not kosher. Um, so he is ruining their good name. So Peter, starting from the beginning, laid it out for them step by step. So he's in Jerusalem talking to his old friends. These would have been mostly, uh, most likely um, religious leaders in Judaism who were now identifying uh, as followers of Jesus, but still really strictly holding on to uh, Levitical law uh, and Jewish law, which is not... I think a lot of times they give uh, they get bad uh, get a bad rep for being legalistic, but this would have been very very normal uh, and expected for just a good Jewish person. Something that is revered over time uh, for all Jewish people to to be. So he says, starting from the beginning, I lay, I'm going to lay it out. Recently, I was in the town of Joppa. We've been there. I, I was praying and I fell into a trance and I saw a vision. Something like a huge blanket lowered by ropes at its four corners. And it came down out of heaven and settled on the ground in front of me. Milling around on the blanket were farm animals, wild animals, reptiles, birds and teddy bears of all colors. You name it. It was all there. Fascinated. I took it all in. So translation, some translations say sheep, I mean sheet. Some translations say blanket. Uh, some translations say uh, cloth. But what this really represents is a banquet table napkin of sorts. That this is displaying all of God's creation on one large banquet table. And so... Peter, in this vision, he's praying as a good Jewish person would do midday, probably ninth hour. And it kind of reminds me of two weeks ago whenever Saul uh, is probably on his way to Damascus in some form of prayer. And he gets hit with a total counterintuitive vision of Jesus as opposed to the glorious Yahweh. Well, Peter here is praying as a good Jewish uh, male would do, follower of the way. And he gets hit with a total opposite vision from God that would have been, I mean, it would have been blasphemous to, I mean, who is this God that Peter encounters in this vision? Well, one that apparently has no regard for their people group. I mean, this is uh, millennia of what it means to be an Israelite person. All of their food festivals, their rhythm of life is, is wrapped up in what you can eat, what you shouldn't eat, uh, when is the proper time to pray? When is the proper time to eat? And now this vision in one fail swoop prayer time is challenging all of that, all right? So he says, I heard a voice, go to it, kill and eat. And Peter says, oh no, master, I've never so much tasted food that wasn't kosher. The voice spoke again, if 
God says it's okay, it's okay. This happened three times. So that kind of harkens back to Peter being, you know, denying Jesus three times. He's, you know, very defiant. I mean, it was a almost heroic act to uh, refuse food. Uh, you see Judas uh, Maccabeus. Uh, he is a historic figure uh, for the Jewish people, and he was uh, one that refused to eat. Uh, and so there's this long tradition of it being a uh, very righteous thing to refuse. So he follows what he should do here. He gets offered food, refuses three times. Very normal. This happened three times, and then the blanket was pulled back up into the sky And it was gone. <laughs> that was great. All right. Just then. So, so we're here, we're, yes. Thank you. Thank you. So just then, uh, Peter is, is left. And he's, I mean, his mind would have to be completely blown. He would have to be really confused. You know, what in the world does this mean? And just then, three men showed up at the house where I was staying. Sent from Caesarea to get me, the Spirit told me to go with them. No questions asked. So I went with them, I and six friends, to the man Cornelius who had sent for me. So Cornelius, in Acts 10, the Acts 10 version of this story, we find uh, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. So this is another... Oh, kind of, you know, questionable figure because he would have been a, uh, a Roman military leader. So he is part of the oppressive group for the current Jewish people. So he would have had, you know, roughly 100 soldiers under his, uh, it, that he would be in charge of. And here he is as the person who is getting a vision from God. Luke in the Acts 10 version uh, does say that uh, Cornelius is a God-fearing man and that he also prays. And so that, I take it to say that Luke is really wanting to challenge these uh, societal and cultural norms to say, look at this Roman centurion. He's uh, a part of the oppressive regime, but he's, he's not. He do, you don't have to be uh, a part of the oppressive regime uh, you can be a God-fearing, praying uh, Gentile person. So that's Cornelius. He sends for Peter in Joppa. So Peter goes. He told us how uh, he had seen an angel, Cornelius, right in his own house, real as his next-door neighbor. And he said, send to Joppa and get Simon, the one they call Peter, and he'll tell you something that will save your life. In fact, you and everyone that you care for so I started in talking, and before I had spoken half a dozen sentences, Peter, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did on us the first time, referring to uh, Pentecost. I remember Jesus' own words, John baptized you with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I ask you, if God gave the exact same gift to them as to us when we believed in the Master Jesus Christ, how could I object to God? How could I object to God in the end? Hearing all of it laid out like that, 
they quieted down. Literally, that phrase means uh, the Jewish people that he was talking to in, back in Jerusalem went silent. So they just, they quieted down. And then, as it sank in, they started praising God. I love that. As it sank in, they were just like, okay, I got it. They started praising God. It has really happened. God has broken through to the other nations and opened them up to life. And what is fascinating about this is that we come to this place where um, the unclean have, has become uh, not necessarily the food on the table. So you see the process of, okay, you know, all the things that crawl on the ground, all of that is unclean, to now first century uh, Roman occupation, uh, Jewish religion is, uh, no, those people are unclean. It's gone from things to people. The God of the nations has now become a God of exclusions. And this is what Peter is directly challenging. And even if, because some people say that the early church and those that were in Jerusalem uh, were typically a little bit more religious and following the uh, kosher Levitical law a little bit more closely, that they would have been okay with the uh, idea of Gentiles being saved, but they would still not have dinner with them. So they would still not associate fully with those people. And here we have this moment where uh, Luke is saying, no, look, it happened. This happened. It's in Acts 10. Okay, it happened. And then the next chapter, he's like, no. No, this happened. I'm going to tell the story again. This is how Peter tells his own story. And then in chapter 15, he's, he says, no, this is how inclusive the gospel and the people of God are. They're in. They're in. There is no uh, clean and unclean. There is no sacred and profane. This is the God of the nations really being this time the God of the nations, okay? Okay? And it's finally, you get this moment where it's like, it sinks in. It sinks in for them. The God of the nations had become the God of exclusion. So there's this, there's this chapel in, in Houston, Texas uh, called the Rothko Chapel. Has anybody ever heard of the Rothko Chapel? It's this really interesting space. I think we have a, a picture of it, a couple of pictures of it. So the Rothko Chapel was built in 1971, and it was commissioned by these architects uh, to be... Uh, designed as a uh, museum and meditative space. And uh, architect, artist, uh, Mark Rothko, he designed uh, these big black canvases to be lined around the inside of this chapel. So here you can kind of see it. So there's these big black canvases. There's 14 of them, and they kind of have a, a little bit of a color hue to it. But what is fascinating about this is that it is a chapel to nothingness. You walk in and you know that it's it's a chapel but it's sort of a monument to, to nothing. And what's so fascinating about this is that it takes a, what seems kind of like a profane space where you walk in and you're faced with the stark, okay, there's no stained glass in here, there's no 
There's no art to any uh, faith. It is just black all around me. A lot of people that walk in always say, well, where's the, I thought there was supposed to be art in here. They don't realize that the black paintings are in fact the art. And what happened about 10 years after uh, this chapel opened is that this space dedicated to nothing actually became a space dedicated to human rights, uh, interfaith relations, in that uh, this has been a, uh, a spot in Texas that people from all over the world have come to gather to deal with human rights uh, violations, issues. Uh, now they have a Rothko Award. Nelson Mandela was one of the uh, honorees that spoke in the Rothko Chapel. So it's a space dedicated to nothing, to the profane, to the, the lack, and yet it has this profound implication. It has a profound uh, meaning where things actually happen within this. It's not a space for nothing. The space for nothing turned into a, a space for everyone. And I see that's how the, the banquet table blanket is. It is a space that seems profane. It seems offensive to the Jewish people. They are incredibly offended by this. And yet, what it is actually saying is that all of this food is for everyone. The, the more food we have, the more people can sit at the table. The more people can dine with us. When I was in, uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was a part of a, a, a group my senior year that uh, was, has anybody ever seen Dead, po Dead Poet Society? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like, you'll kind of get an idea for the group. It's a group of guys, it's like 10 guys, and we had a, uh, a Dead Poet Society sort of group. And on Sunday nights, we would, uh, like, you know, good Texan guys, uh, back our trucks in a circle in a parking lot, and uh, we would talk about life. We would, talk, we would write really terrible poetry um, and read it to each other, and we... It was unbelievable, and we had a we had a small group leader that was uh, in his mid twenties at the time, and he would do these uh, little events. And one of the events that he took us on was uh, that fall. So this is fall of, of two thousand and six. We uh, went to uh, a graveyard, and I thought this is so weird. Okay, this guy is like. We're like hopping in you know, a truck bed and riding to this graveyard. Like this is super weird. So we're driving there and we're all kind of like talking in the tr truck and wondering like what in the world we're gonna end up doing there. And we drove to the back of this graveyard. There's this big oak tree. And uh, he had these little slips of paper for us. And we went around and uh, we would go find uh, tombstones that would have little memorials on them and we would write some interesting ones down and we all gathered back under the oak tree and what was a really in my mind weird and profane uh, idea at the beginning became one of the most transformative experiences of my life like I can remember the feel of that day I can remember the things and the conversations that my friends had in the world that that opened us up to and one of my very first times here uh, we talked about uh, Ken's final sermon and talked about the passage you know in order to 
uh, find your life. You have to lose it. The gospel is always subverting our understanding of what is clean and unclean, who's in, who's out. You have to lose your life to find it. I, this is so strange. You know, we talked about the buried life after that, that in order to really live, we have to somehow come together around this shared lack, this shared grief sometimes, which we saw last week in Dorcas. In order to understand a sacred space, sometimes we have to question the space to begin with. And the, the final lectionary passage from this week is, uh, is one from John 13, and it begs a question. Uh, it gets right to the point of what Peter is grappling with and what the uh, Jewish people in Jerusalem that are followers of the way are grappling with because they're essentially trying to decide who's, who's our neighbor, who's, our, who's in. I, don't, I mean, this is, it seems so easy to us looking back because we live in such a globalized society, but they're really grappling with their religious identity at this point. And John 13, uh, 34 and 35 is where our uh, lectionary ends today and Jesus says I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you you should also love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so we have this moment where uh, the food at the table becomes open to everyone. The table gets a lot bigger whenever there's more food. And uh, there are these commandments that Jesus gives that supersede the law. Um, I give you a new commandment. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. We see the early church doing this. We see Dorcas doing this uh, by her ministry, by giving of her life to the poor, to the widow. And now we see Peter opening up the faith to everyone in a profound moment that Luke in Acts is trying to show us. They're in. There's room at the table. They're in. There's room at the table. Let's pray. This morning, we recognize that there are people today that we are leaving out, that we are forgetting, that we are neglecting, that we are ignoring, that we feel like we're better than, that we're smarter than, we're more holy than, more attractive than. There are people that we are afraid of, there are people that we are suppressing, oppressing, and excluding from the radically inclusive love of God. And so we ask you, as you have called us to follow in the way of your risen Son, and to care for those who are our companions, not only with words of comfort, but with acts of love. Because you said that is how people will know that we are your disciples. Not by who we exclude, but by who we include. Seeking to be true friends of all. Friends. 
we offer our prayers on behalf of our church. We offer this prayer on behalf of the world, that we would seek opportunities for peace. Guide us in the path of discipleship, so that as you have blessed us, we may be a blessing for others, bringing the promise of the kingdom nearby in our words 